Hello and welcome to episode three of Plotcast. We have a very exciting array of guests. We're going to be speaking with the people who actually go and do the communications themselves from the Eurobubble. I'll hand you over to them to introduce themselves. My name's Laura Shields. I'm the Managing Director of Red Thread EU, which is a Brussels-based media public speaking message development agency. And before that, I used to be a journalist for the BBC and CNN in London, but I've been in Brussels for 13 years. Hello, uh, I'm Adrian Heal. I work in policy and communications for Energy Cities, which is a network of about a thousand cities across Europe. I've been in Brussels for 18 years now. Prior to that, my background was as a journalist as well, but I've been doing uh, lobbying and advocacy work for donkey's years. So I've been, I've had experiences of being on the comm side of the, the bubble and the policy side of the bubble. And it's always been interesting seeing how policy can support comms and vice versa. But I want to turn to you and ask, why do you think communications is so important to try and succeed in EU affairs? Well, if you're in public affairs, you are basically doing communications, whether you think it or not. And that includes people working in policy. Because if you need to influence people so that you get your position reflected and hopefully endorsed in whatever legislation is coming up, then you need to be able to communicate so that you're visible, that you get access, and that also ultimately you're influential. So if you can't communicate, then you can't really do public affairs. Adrian, what's your take? Much the same as Laura's, really. I mean, the whole idea is that this is a sort of marketplace of ideas. And like any marketplace, it's not based on meritocracy. It's based on who has the the best sales pitch in a lot of cases. So you need to convince people. You need to get the message out. Um, And channel can be just as as important as message because ultimately you can have the best message. But if you don't get it out there to the right ears, it doesn't matter either. Do you think people get that? Do you think they're doing it right? If I look at your Twitter, Laura, I see frequently... uh, rants about how how comms is going wrong or people don't get it so do you think people are getting it right and if not what are some of those common errors that you see coming through first of all comms is actually very hard to do well and i think that a lot of organizations particularly those that don't actually have a particular communications mindset or strong staff don't realize that you know there is this old cliche that everybody has a kitchen so they can cook the idea is also that we can everybody writes, everybody talks, so therefore they can communicate, make helpful inputs into the process. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in this town is that policy and expertise are often given heavier weight in a lot of these organisations. And that that is really where the big challenge is, in, in Brussels in particular. But I would like to stress that it is actually challenging wherever you are in the world. Mm-hmm. But I think we have some specific challenges And Adrian, just interested from an NGO perspective, is the same challenge there? Because sometimes when we sit on on the corporate side of the fence and we look at how NGOs operate, we think, oh, they've got it easy in terms of comms because they're just sticking inflated seals outside of the European (laughs) Parliament. Or do you see the same same issues sort of coming through? I mean, A, you've got the same issues in terms of uh, comms mindset, where you've got a number of very well-educated people with PhDs who have spent an inordinate amount of time in school where people have been paid literally to read what they write. And they think that that's normal, that people would be interested. But the fact is, no one in Brussels is paid to read what you write anymore. And it needs a very, very different approach to how to do that. From the NGO side specifically, the challenges are different. There's no question. You have a different level of credibility, whether that's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And you have a different amount of resources. And really, you have a very different approach 
your motivation as an NGO in communicating is very, very different from a corporate. Mm. And that brings freedom to be much more freer and put a, a seal in front of uh, Strasbourg Parliament. But it, it, it means that overall your job is, is still different. And Laura, you were saying that there's some specific challenges in, in the Brussels environment in particular compared to elsewhere. What, what are those challenges in, in the Brussels environment? But what do you think is the root cause of those challenges? Is it the kind of people we have here, the way we work or, or something different? I think Adrian's alluded to it already in terms of the kind of types of highly intelligent people who've got PhDs and things along those lines. I think in terms of Brussels specific challenges, there's probably three that I can think of. The first is it's consensus town and consensus is not sexy and comms needs conflict and tension. Now we do get conflict and tension, but it tends to play out over months and years. And also a lot of people here are risk averse about jeopardizing uh, relationships behind the scenes by being very vocal or critical in public. So there is often a dampening down. Complexity, you know, the EU has its own specific jargon. So that all the stuff around cohesion policy and structural funds and all that kind of stuff, but then you have sector specific stuff. And I know we're gonna talk about climate change. Climate change is the gift of technical uh, <laughs> language. So we've got the gigawatts, the megatons, yeah. all of that, the megawatt hours, which I still don't understand despite having taken a crash course. And then finally, we also have the Tower of Babel. So we have the non-native to non-native uh, component. And I think it's interesting that the four of us here are all native English speakers, mm. which we do need to get into a little bit more. Now, what this all means is that the scope for getting messages through in a way that is concrete and clear and compelling and on the right channels is actually quite narrow, you know, because there are so many structural challenges that are in there. But I do think it's a little bit more about mindset and sort of shifting things a little bit in order to be able to deal with that. And how do we overcome that mindset change? Um, I approach it through visuals. We all, everyone knows how to read and write, so everyone tends to read and write. But in a lot of the cases, that's just not the best way to get your message across. That's why we put a giant seal in front of Strasbourg. That's why I got the Belgian government to crush a ton and a half of ivory. Ultimately, and especially if you're looking for media relations, the standard question in any newsroom will be, well, what's the pick that goes with that story? And people need to stop thinking that putting a PDF on a web page with black and white text is an effective way to get a message across. You know, it could be an infographic or a video, although please not too many videos. Other big error is people thinking they can just do podcasts and they feel like having a go. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't well, you say, Adrian? I, 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 think, definite, definitely uh, I, I think podcasts risk. are the way of future, or TikTok like uh, young Connor is doing over here. I think, I think actually you've identified something there as well, as well though, is that when we look at the kind of people who graduate and come into jobs in Brussels a lot of the time, they're people who've maybe been to College of Europe or Maastricht, mm. not that there's anything wrong with that, but they would be equally at home in lobbying, consultancy, the institutions, a think tank. You know, they're not necessarily that commercially minded, and I don't mean commercially in the business sense, mm. I mean as in the kind of sales mm -hmm. sense. And so often they don't necessarily have, have the requisite skill on that. What you just said before about visuals reminded me, have you heard the E.O. Wilson quote? No. Okay, so basically he was a biologist and he said, I think he said it about 13 years ago, and I'm paraphrasing it slightly. Man's basic problem, or humanity's basic problem, is that we have paleolithic brains, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And I think that actually what people often think in this town is that we have godlike brains in some ways which is that it's that we're very rational very mm. sort of enlightenment you know that it's all about evidence it's all about this and that whereas actually we're kind of lizardy still <laughs> and that the best way to connect with people is the visual uh, and i think that's a that's a really interesting point and i think coming from a 
a corporate background in the company where it's all about engineering and evidence and process, trying to explain that to internal stakeholders within the business. We want to do an infographic, we want to do a video, we want to do some an argument that's emotional. There's a pushback. No, we can't do that. It's got to be really evidenced. And and sometimes we think, and coming back to you, Adrian, is the NGOs have it easier because they don't necessarily have that sort of corporate institution in the background. So do you think it is it easier for an NGO just to put out those emotive messages? Well, we're talking about different things now. Mm. There's emotive messages and then there's there's visuals. Yeah. NGOs have it easier in that they're not as conservative. Mm. Yes, that that is definitely true. However, I would argue strenuously that in a lot of cases they're more evidence-based than what I see from a lot of the trade associations and a lot of the lobbies in this town. Because ultimately their motivation is, is quite simple. They see a problem and they either want to raise awareness about the problem or they want to propose a solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a really direct line. From a corporate point of view, there's a whole load of other conflicting values and things that they need to take into account when they're taking out their mm -hmm. lobbying line. And that's why they end up with sentences like, they welcome an initiative but will be vigilant about the future in terms of incorporating this into a, you know, a dynamic energy business going forward. Like, that's how they get caught up in these things, because they're trying to bring too much in. One of the other challenges that, I mean, I talked about consensus a bit at the beginning, but Brussels is a town of, of supergroups in some ways, which is its trade associations and membership networks and members of mm -hmm. members and this, that and the other, and so much of it is internal facing. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you've got to an agreement, which has cost you so much pain yes. and compromise, yes. the comms part is maybe 5%, and people just externalise their pain for everybody else to see. <laughs> and, and of course, forget to say what the impact is or why it's important. Now, you know, you talked a little bit about, you talked a bit about being more visual uh, as one way of dealing with it. I think organisationally, before I came here, I was sitting down thinking, what would I say are the characteristics of an organisation with a good communications mindset? I would say they firstly, they have an, a comms department where the director reports to the boss, mm -hmm. is not subsumed into policy or advocacy. Secondly, and I actually got this idea from somebody from a trade association who will remain unnamed, a lean approvals process, mm. right? Yes. So he, you know, he said that whenever he advises juniors who are going for jobs, he says always ask how many people need to see a press release before it goes out. If it's more than four, run away. Uh, what else would I say? The experts who have to do any kind of public-facing job, whether it's policy writing, policy statements, position papers, they all have to be trained in basics on audiencing, messaging, structure, and language, and how to use evidence. Yep. And then finally, and this is always the most controversial one, experts are invited to input into the communications process just to check that there is nothing wrong, but they don't get the final say on what goes out. Those, to me, are the hallmarks of a healthy comms culture. Now, of course, it's difficult to build that all the time, but I do think those are the things that if you want to set one up, you should be encouraging, but particularly the approvals process, mm. because that's what really kills everything here. Yeah, I, I think the approvals process is, is something that definitely resonates for me. And, it, and it, it's, it's just approvals, but also input. Because sometimes there's an approvals process where you've just sent it to somebody to have a quick check, but they've decided they need to have an input. And then the next person, and then you've you you know you've designed an elephant by committee. and Better send it, it to legal. Better send it to legal. Um, but sometimes in companies, you have to do that because the risk of sending something out that's not been scrutinized by... 20 different people, you open yourself up to a lot of challenges. You do, but I think there's a, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, partly because I'm writing a book, so this is the upselling time, everybody. Uh, but I, firstly, I think there's going to be some great courses in years to come about how to read 
you know, how people should input into Google comments, you know, track changes and edit docs. Mm. Like I'm really looking forward to the first organizational psychology studies that come out about <laughs> how people behave in these things. But actually that you can have quite a fierce approvals editing process, I think, because, mm -hmm. you know, as we would all agree, if you're going to be a good communicator, you need to create coherence for your audience, which means that whatever you produce, whether it's written or spoken, has to be coherent mm, mm. because the audience creates it for themselves. It's not something that you can actually create for them. So you have to design, write, speak it all in a way that helps the audience to do that. Mm -hmm. If you have, say, some poor junior, or not junior, or some poor comms person who writes a really nice first draft of something, sends it up what I call the chain of interference rather than chain of approvals, everybody adds from their own perspective. Mm -hmm. So that quite very looking at it in their siloed bit, they don't see their preferred language or the specific details that they want. And then finally, by the time it comes back or it gets approved to go out, it's distorted, the coherence is lost. And I think that this is one of the biggest challenges that needs to be addressed and that somebody needs to be able to crack down on, which is why mm. I think it needs to come from the top, which is that how we give comments, how we approve things, how we edit into these processes is, is really designed to just check that everything is okay or only add things in if they absolutely have to be rather than because you feel like it and want to have your say, which let's face it, is probably 70%. That's a really, really interesting point. And it kind of resonates with me as the most junior by far in this room. Mm. Almost every junior comms professional that I know is awash with creativity and ideas. And I mean, Adrian, you talked about putting a, a seal in front of Strasbourg, but these ideas are so commonplace amongst juniors. But then you get up that pyramid and you go through each chain of approval and it's somehow lost. And these people who might not be as familiar with new technologies or even social media in, in some organisations, would you say that that kind of process kills the creativity? Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think it's what Laura just said. It's, it's the chain of interference, right? Because you've got people commenting on things, especially when it has to go back to the home office or whatever it is, right? There's an expression in Yiddish, kibitz. Do you know that? Kibitzer? I don't. A kibitzer is basically somebody... I love Yiddish. It's just the most amazing <laughs> language. A kibitzer is basically somebody who watches a card game and isn't actually participating but makes unhelpful and unwelcome comments on how it's all going. Oh, I know people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough, a few yeah. people like that. Are you the kibitzer <laughs> in your organisation? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. No, because invariably my role is to cut, 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 cut. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I don't care. The audience doesn't care. Take it out, take it out, take it out, take it out until you're left with a streamlined message. And the junior person that you're talking about, Connor, can't do that because it's the vice president of legal who put that in there and they there's no way that they can go in and say thank you you know mr 25 years of service to this company thank you for your comment but we're going to disregard it now no i think this is what it comes back to the point that i made earlier i think about which is that everybody's had the training in the basics so that they understand mm -hmm. what it is that comms is actually there to do rather than being a service provider or that it doesn't you know that it's sort of subordinate to other departments because i think you know, I, I mean, I'm married to a lawyer and he said, one of the things that often you don't understand Laura, is that, you know, I have to check everything's right because if it's not, then my client gets sued, which I totally understand. Mm. But I mean, he's a bit more, you know, he's more <laughs> open to things than that. But I said, but there is a difference between preferred legal language yeah. and wrong. You know, and I yeah. think that this is where people in comms could actually probably be a bit more sympathetic to the challenge for the experts, because you probably have had this as well, is that they're worried about being oversimplified mm -hmm. they're worried about being con con uh, accused of being inaccurate especially in ngos yeah. or credibility for them there is a discomfort with not seeing the wording in the way that they want it to be you know there's a lot of kind of nurturing that needs to go in 
right up the food chain in terms of getting people to understand how to let go. And on your point, it must be very frustrating, Connor, as juniors who work in comms have loads of ideas because I was like this when I first got to Brussels. I was younger back in the day. Um, I went into media training and I would just say to people, you've got to be simple. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. People won't really understand. And I could see these old guys who'd worked in industry for 30 years going, you're right. What she you know? Mm. And so it's one of these things where you have to learn how to manage people so that you can help them to let go. And I think these processes do kill creativity, but the best thing that juniors can do is probably to try and really lean in and understand what's motivating people to come in the way that it is. But you can't change this. It's got to come from t on the top. Yeah, yeah. but the, the top layer has to understand that. And I think that's where the role of, of comps people within organizations is. It's not just communicating externally, but communicating mm -hmm. internally to prove the benefit of, of what we're doing. One of the things that struck me as you were speaking, Adrian, is you used the word audience. We've not really touched on that very much. We have a sense ourselves as communicators of what works and what, what is the right way to do. But how are we, uh, or, or you guys in, in, in doing this professionally, testing with audiences, how do you know what the audience wants, particularly in a Brussels environment? I mean, we don't, we don't do you know, A-B audience testing in Brussels. It's, it's too small. We don't have the budget. You know, it would be nice. Part of it, A, is talking. You, you know, you, it's good networking. You need to meet someone for coffee every week. You just have to, to understand mm -hmm. their, their points of view. Part of it is understanding the dynamics of your audience. So as an MEP, right, you want, you're one of 700-something MEPs. You're, you're a P in the crowd. You want to find some way to communicate to your constituency that you're doing stuff. NGOs are a great way of giving them credibility because they can come up, they have a cause, there's this issue, and they can show, ideally physically, you know, here's all these thousands of people that care about something, and the MEP can take a photo of, of themselves with the NGO saying, here I am, I'm listening to your concerns, dear constituents, please vote for me the next time. It's not quite that crass, but there is a credibility issue for MEPs and they also have their own media machine that they need to feed. They have their own Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and websites and whatnot. And if you can give them little videos where they can, you know, that they can splice themselves into actions that they can take part in where they get the audiovisual content to feed their own machine, you're making yourself that much more useful to MEPs. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, obviously, Agent has been more experience in that. On audiences, I think the most fundamental mistake that people make is that they don't actually know what their audience thinks. I'm not talking about who is your audience. I don't want to go down that rabbit mm. hole right now. Whenever I start messaging sessions with people now, I give them the checklist and the second question is, what does my audience actually think? And most of them don't know. Or when they do, and then I say, right, you've said you want to say this, look at where they are, look at where their thinking is, look at where your thinking is, in what way do you think this message is gonna work with them? And this is kind of like revelation for mm. some people. Mm. Now, obviously that sounds like I'm very, being very patronizing, but I do think it's one of these things that often gets forgotten is that people go charging in with a, this is what I want to say, rather than will this actually work with this particular audience? And it is difficult to get the insights into this, but at the same time, it's not impossible Right? You just have to talk to people, you have to read what they tweet about, you have to read the media. I mean, if you want to use data, you can, although, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on that. I do think it, it, it's growing as an area, not, not fast enough or sufficient enough. Uh, but I think that if you don't know your audience, you might as well just give up. I mean, sorry to be so, like, well, don't get <laughs> no, but, that, but, but I, do, I just think it's so, so fundamental. It is yeah. fundamental. And I'm quite, yeah. I am always slightly, I, even after 13 years of this, I'm always slightly surprised when people go, well, I don't know what they think. And then how are you going to move them if you don't know what their starting point is? But I think that that piece about 
telling the story your audience wants to hear, not the story you want to tell, is it's uh, that resonates with that. I think I think you have all to... throughout my career is we want to, and you know, some of the bad examples you go, oh, put out a press release that we've had a, an event and we've published a document because that's the story the association, the business wants to tell. You know, the the widget manufacturers have released their annual statement. Who cares? That's not what the audience wants to hear. Well, I think it's. I think this is important. Actually, I'm going to slightly contradict you mm. here because I think that when you say what is it the audience wants to hear, I don't think it's what they want to hear. It's how they need to hear it. Mm. I think that's actually mm. different because I don't think that. I think you have to be consistent if you're doing lobbying uh, or public affairs, especially if legislation is a long haul. You've got one or two issues. You know, I used to do campaigning stuff for Brexit. We had one message in three years. Right now, mm -hmm. we felt ridiculous every time we had to come out and use the same message, but it's because our story didn't change. So consistency is important. It's not about telling people what they want to hear, but you do need to package it in a way that speaks to their agenda. And I think this is probably, if you look at what senior commission officials say, or if you look, or retired ones, you know, there's that interview. I can't remember, I think it was a former head of DG Sante, potentially, where he did, they asked him, you know, what advice they would give lobbyists. He was like, don't overestimate, overestimate our knowledge, even mm -hmm. in the commission, keep it short. You don't have very much time. Yeah. Here's right? a quote for you. Do you know who Charles Bukowski is? Yes. Yeah. Kill your babies <laughs> okay. in your messaging. You yeah. need to kill your babies. Just because you have written something that you think, this sums it up perfectly. Still too long. Well, this is the other thing is actually, I go, there's so much more that we could add to it. And it'll be no different when we finish this podcast. You and I will come out of this and say, oh, I should have said that. Mm. We won't be thinking, I should have said less. Yeah. And that's how everybody writes. It's how everybody talks. It's how everybody thinks. And you know, one of the areas where it is actually useful having been a journalist is that journalists never have the problem of getting more information. We're constantly thinking, what can I use? So our instincts to reject mm. information. So we have a little bit more of an advantage in that sense, which is we know that people that we're talking to often don't, can't retain too much. But I think people who write a lot, and especially if they're at the beginning of their careers, they think there's safety in quantity. You know, I see this as well with executive briefings for interviews. You know, I always enjoy it when, I mean, it sounds very mean, but senior executives who go all a bit Lord of the Flies on the briefing that they've been given by their <laughs> internal team <laughs> because they've been given 40 pages for a 10 minute interview yeah. and they can't use it. Be and because it's probably somebody has been a bit risk averse and it yeah. takes an awful lot of confidence to be able to say, here's three points. Here's a couple of examples. You're good. Yeah. But does that come down to what we were saying before about the background of people who work in this town? So if you've got people who have done master's degrees and the requirement was write at least 30,000 words. And so you're almost educated to write to length and like, oh, I've, I've got 500 words more to go. So I better make something up and, 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 and pad it. And then you come here and it's the opposite dynamic. It's, but you, you still have that sense. I'm, I'm trained to write a lot. Or to, it's a challenge to go back the other way, isn't well, it? Well, it is. I wonder, also, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your, what you have to say on this, I mean, obviously I end up being brought in to train a lot of people, less on the writing, more on the drafting and the message, all the rest of it, but people get hired, they get hired for certain things, but then when they're on the job, they don't make the transition quickly enough to say being a consultant or a lobbyist or an NGO or whatever, and they're not necessarily given sufficient guidance on what the standard is and what they're expected to do. Mm. And so a lot of the time they end up being trained later or they're not just given the clear guidance, they just get their work back and it's been edited and it, it, and there is they don't really know what's expected of them. So I think it can be that it can be a bit academic. There is also that some European languages are more discursive mm. than if you're writing mm. in English. We shouldn't underestimate that challenge. But I think it's also that a lot of interns new people aren't necessarily told this is how we do it and here's how you can do it and this is how we're going to help you to keep doing it it's really difficult to change behavior 
right? Right. Well, I don't need to tell <laughs> yeah. you that, but what I'm trying to say, it, it starts, I mean, I very bottom up, which is, mm. I think it's all about the skills that you build. And I'm not sure that consistency of development is necessarily there for people right at the beginning of their career. Like, I wonder how many agencies, when they're interviewing people or your companies mm. or NGOs, they might do a writing test. But do they say how good, you know, weed out all the jargon here or tell us all the words that you don't understand? No, uh, but I think I might start doing that in the well, future. Well, that's an idea so, for my book, Steve Patrick, there like, you go. And I look forward to reading the book. But do you see what I mean? As in, I think there's huge yeah. pressure. I think part of it is also, and we haven't talked about that, is there's huge pressure that people feel to fit in. And I still sometimes mm. get this as mm. well, which is you look at the way things are written, and because, you know, and you think, oh, I should really understand that I'm stupid, there's something wrong with me. And then you're like, no, somebody else can't write. It's much easier if, if you don't understand something completely and authoritatively, it's much easier to waffle on and on and on yeah. than it is if you're an expert to be able to put it down into one paragraph. Well, it wasn't Mark Twain who said this. Everybody says it was Mark Voltaire, Twain. Voltaire, wasn't it? Who said or it? Pascal. It was the other one I heard about. Ah, I okay. apologise for the length of this letter, but I didn't have time to write a short one. So we've got... Okay, if anybody who's listening to this knows in the... T- mm-hmm. Well, we'll have Googled it by then. But uh, <laughs> Mark Twain, Pascal, or who's the other one that you said? No, Voltaire. Pascal, Pascal was the one. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. the, the quote. What, do you want to tell them what the quote was? Tell us what the quote I was. I apologise for this lesson, the length of this letter, but I didn't have the time to write a short one. Yeah, I, th- I think there is something to it. And writing shortly, and, oh, or speaking, you know, in, in a short and concise way, is, is hard because you do have to boil down the fat of of the messaging and to try and get. And you need to know what you think. And you need to know what you think. Don't know which, and I, I think sometimes that's a challenge for comms people because the engineers or the experts know what they think in a very detailed way and then they try and communicate that to the comms person who sort of halfway gets it and then sometimes covers up the lack of understanding like you're saying with a bit of bit of that's peanut butter and jam on top of it to fill in the cracks yeah. that's down to the comms person yeah. to ask the question yeah. but explain not, it to me like a six-year-old and give me an example the challenge around that though then is that if the comms person doesn't want to doesn't have the confidence you know it takes a lot of confidence to be able to say i don't get it yeah and in fact, first 10 years of my career, I didn't have That's what confidence. I mean. That's yeah. a, what yeah. I meant about this huge pressure to kind of perpetuate what I call this emperor's new clothes phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only person who's ever said that. But <laughs> probably, probably not. And I, I think jargon's one as well. And I think the point you you were making about trying to fit in and, and, and oh. jargon and share oh, jargon. Yeah. Is, I remember, you know, when I first came and I was like, oh, yeah, I can use all these jargons and acronyms. And I've made it in Brussels because I'm, I'm in the club. But yeah, we, we really need to pull ourselves out of that because yeah, it's, it's just horrible when you see all these acronyms, jargon or, or terms or phrases which don't understand. Depends who you're communicating. If, if the people you need to talk to understand the jargon and it's a, a legitimate shortcut, it's not the end of the world. I know it's bad practice. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world, although I will say something. The difference between spoken and written communication is quite key here. Yes. Because mm. if you're writing and there's a piece of jargon in there, somebody can go back and take longer to process and all the rest of it. When you speak, you are in control of the information, not just how the information sorry, the information that the audience gets, but also the coherence forming ability of it, and so their ability to absorb it. And this is where we know that even with your expert audiences, the jargon does slow the audience down, because mm. you might understand it, but your brain still takes longer to process it. And if there's too much of that, in the same way that if you see a PowerPoint with too much text or too much detail, we give up. Yeah. And that's what we call cognitive load theory. So this is where I would actually say, it, if you want to be efficient, you will limit your chances if you use a lot of jargon when you're speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, we talked at the beginning about maybe moving the conversation on to, to climate change and energy and so on. And I think it's an area I'm starting to get my head around and there is so much jargon in it. And do you think that that jargon and that sort of 
the language we're using around the discussion on climate change of Fit for 55 is slowing down progress? Do you think we could be doing more if we were communicating more clearly about it? Shall I give you my outsider's take first? Yeah, you, you go first then, so, Adrian, as a, a master of the art. <laughs> if you're talking, if it's based, so just, sorry, people, if you're talking, and it's a serious nerds discussion, mm. and if people get in and they do argue about the detail, and that's fine if you know what that's for, I think where it becomes harder is to create that sense of urgency if you can't translate it to the wider audience. And I am thinking particularly of the data here. So... You know, we were joking at the beginning before about climate change. It's full of the megawatts, the gigatons, all that kind of stuff. And I think that if you say, you know, we have to be 30, we have to have 30 megawatts up by 2030 of wind power. Somebody like me, no idea what that mm -hmm. means. Yeah. You know, if you say that we've got to build the entire current fleet of Germany every year, every month for the next six years or something, I'm getting a bit more of an idea about why this is a pretty big deal. It's very difficult to, to create urgency, broad appeal, if you cannot connect it to the wider audience. Yeah, I, I would say I almost never talk about climate change. It's too big. It's yeah. too daunting. It's far too easy to slip <laughs> into a, 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 a terrible descent into despair. Um, when I We talk a lot about energy, obviously, at mm -hmm. Energy Cities. Um, I will try as much as possible to talk about, like, we need to stop burning stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. So in terms of home heating, yes, we use 160 billion cubic meters of gas to heat homes in, in Europe every year. How much is that? <laughs> right. You have no idea. Yeah. And I, I could give you, you know, different numbers to put it into perspective and stuff. It's like a, it's 40 percent of all the gas we use. OK, so it's a lot, but you already knew it was a lot. So the question then becomes, well, what are the alternatives? And it's like, well, we, we need to do all this stuff that doesn't burn. And we have technology to do it it all is there well so you i spend an awful lot of my time trying to ground people from mm. the conceptual world to the real world and i put out a tweet about it a few weeks ago where i said typical brussels media training in a nutshell where i said can you give me an example to my trainee yeah. to make it more concrete for the journalist and she said yes for example we need a structural investment and <laughs> well, we all we, i know we all had a good <laughs> laugh and eventually what i got her down to was it would be more helpful if the eu didn't just throw you know cap gas prices and throw money at the problem in the mm. short term but actually that they helped people particularly in the lowest income households to insulate their homes and to get down payments on heat pumps yeah. so I was I basically was joking with Patrick before I just on anybody who's got to do climate I just, say, just say heat pumps and insulation <laughs> <laughs> pumps heat pumps will save us all don't work for the heat pump association by the way um, but do you see you know it's it's getting them down to that level yeah. a lot of the no, time I and I think yeah. most people thinking they're just not there and you that's where you have to help them yeah the nice thing about heating is that everyone has a heating system yeah so I almost exclusively talk about district heating as an example in your street mm. this is what needs to be done in terms of taking up the blocks of the road and at the same time maybe you're putting down fiber optics I try to use really specific uh, examples, visual examples that people can yeah. imagine, right? So I say, what a, what a, especially during COVID, right? Because we're all on webinars, yeah, uh, on Zoom calls. So I say, look out your window, tell me what you see. This is what we need to do. There's a biodiversity. Do you see green space? Okay, well we've got a biodiversity directive that needs to take that into account. Do you see rubbish bins? Okay, we've got a circular economy thing that needs to change those. Do you see a car? Well, we've got a mobility strategy that needs to change that. Do you see your road, which doesn't have a bike path? Well, that needs mm -hmm. to. 
So just really, really concrete examples mm. that people can imagine. And also, actually, with the, I mean, I'm, oh, I'm I can't believe I'm about to say this. You need to show them that change is possible, and therefore hope, because this is one of the conversations that I hear a lot from people who are trying to create the discussion around eating less meat, and it's still a bit of a last taboo mm. in some quarters. Whereas actually, you know, and what I always say to the campaigners that I've worked with on this is, look, don't come and say we need to eat less meat and dairy and the you know agriculture this and methane and all the rest of it. It's just not going to work with a lot of people. If you say, look, even eating meat one less meal a week can do this automatically people feel like they have more agency mm. on this. And then secondly, this is where things like, where you can show the different changes and diets and this and that, but you make it really tangible and small so that it's broken down into parts for people so that they don't feel like they have to carry the whole weight of this existential crisis on their shoulders and that they don't, and they, that, that gives them an excuse to give up and not do anything mm. because we're mm. all doomed. I think we're starting to come to the end of the time, so I just want to finish up. We're with just getting started. On it. Well, we're going to the pub afterwards, so um, <laughs> any plugs casters out there, we'll be at the pub. Just a quick fire round for both of you. I think if you can just give me one example of, of, of or thought about something that is not going well in comms in Brussels, and then one piece of, are things getting better, or, or what's one piece of advice you could give to, to communicators here to, to do better? To be honest, the, the biggest problem right now in, in Brussels is that there's so much going on, mm-hmm. right? For those of us who've been here for a long time, it's never been this busy. Everyone is shout. It feels like everyone's shouting at each other about all the different priorities that are going on. If you want to be a really good communicator, you need to really focus on your audience. Who do you need to talk to? And almost try and do it one-to-one. Because if you're out there shouting on social media or trying to publish op-eds, it just gets lost. It gets lost in the mess. On that, really yeah, and I would actually also say change your, the words that you use, as in we talk a little bit about being part of the group. One of the other challenges on climate change is that everybody uses the same language. So it is essential to accelerate the decarbonisation and the green transition. And I mean, it's all heavy on the tongue anyway, but everybody says the same thing. And that's partly also because a lot of the time people's ideas aren't necessarily radically different in the NGO mm-hmm. space, particularly. And so, like, well, if you want to cut through, then don't use the same language that everybody else is using. I mean, that's just a basic point about standing out. So that would be my piece of advice, is think about how you can say the same thing, but differently. I'll follow that up with a, a second piece of advice. Always know when to shut up. If someone, if your language is the same as someone else, let them say it. Focus on what you want to do. Focus on what makes you different and, and, and value add for whatever your organization is. Yeah. And sometimes as communicators, that's hard to do because we're paid to express and communicate and shutting up is, is hard. But maybe that's a nice line to, to draw it on and we'll um, ourselves shut up. Uh, but thanks, guys, for, for joining. Um, been really interesting, really fascinating to hear from you. Any last oh, thoughts? Maybe, maybe just a, a chance for one last plug. Uh, you mentioned your book, Lara. Yeah, my book, which will be out after... God knows when. Uh, yeah, I'm writing a book on how to improve messaging in and around the EU institutions. Um, so the whole bubble. I don't like bubble, but it is that idea. Uh, but yes, it's going to be a practical how-to guide, which actually really wrestles with all this thing about how to take comments. You know, because Americans can come. I'm half American, by the way. People come and go. Make it simple. Great. Really difficult to do. <laughs> what about all the processes that get to simple? So that's what it's going to be about. I hope. I don't have anything to plug, uh, so no, just what thanks for having pump? me. What about your heat pump? <laughs> I don't have one yet. I don't have one yet. My house is being renovated this week, though. It's all being insulated, so the heat pump will come after that. Excellent. Great. Great.